let me introduce you to Colin Hernandez. Now, about a year ago, Colin emailed me as he had just experienced, and I mean just experienced, a traumatic hand injury. Uh, And he wanted to uh, track and share his experience in rehabilitating that particular injury. So we connected a year later after he'd been through extensive amounts of rehab uh, about his experience. And this is what I am bringing to you today. Now, just a pre-warning, we don't go into too much super graphic information. Colin is exceptionally good at uh, using medical terminologies instead of very sort of emotive and descriptive terminologies for his injury. Um, But it is a traumatic injury nonetheless. So if this is something that you might find a little triggering, then feel free to uh, skip this one. But it's an extremely valuable, valuable uh, learning experience, uh, what Colin has been through. And he just might be the most positive person I've ever met in my life. So strap in, please enjoy the amazing Colin Hernandez. G'day, my name's Brock Cook and welcome to Occupied. In this podcast, we're aiming to put the occupation in occupational therapy. We explore the people, topics, theories and underpinnings that make this profession so incredible. If you're new here, you can find all of our previous episodes and resources at OccupiedPodcast.com. But for now, let's roll the episode. No, I would agree 100%. So... It was actually back when I was in high school uh, that I was first introduced to it. And I kind of, you know, um, I kind of let it take a backseat in my mind. And so what happened was it was my senior year of high school. I was taking a student worker, like my, one of my classes was a, was as a student worker. And I was a student worker for a PE teacher uh, for physical education and, you know, a, student worker for physical education teacher doesn't really do anything, particularly when it's that teacher's off block, right? So it, it was a free hour for me. Well, during that hour, the gym was free that we were in. And oftentimes, some of the, uh, you know, some of the students with, with more special needs would come in, you know, students with autism or uh, whatever their disability might be, and they would essentially play, you know, they would shoot the basketball, we do, you know, tennis and badminton and stuff. And so since I was off, and I wasn't going to sit in an office, I would go and, and play with them, you know, and I noticed that sometimes who I thought was the teachers would come over and they would, you know, help us play and, you know, do some kind of things depending on, on, you know, who the student was. And I was like, uh, I asked one of them one day, I was like, how long have you been a teacher? And she said, I'm not a teacher. I'm an I'm an OT. I'm like, what is this? She said, I'm an occupational therapist. And I was like, okay. And I was like, I don't know what that is. And what is that? Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, I was like, what is that? And so I asked her, I was like, so like you're at work right now and you're, you're playing, right? Like you're, you're, you're playing with these kids. And she was like, that's what we do. That's what we do. And she kind of left it at that. And, you know, being in high school, I, I didn't dig deeply, but I was like, man, they have it made, you know, it's, yeah. it, they're, they look like they're having a good time. And so that kind of, you know, it, it sat in the back of my mind. I didn't really think about it, went off to college and was interested. I knew I wanted to do something involving kinesiology, human body. Um, and so I ended up doing kinesiology with the concentration and fitness studies. 
and you know you kind of have that everybody has a career crisis mid to late college and uh i got online and i started looking up you know what can i do with this degree and i saw physical therapy and i was like yeah you know cool but i, I would rather go like the personal training route if i was just you know, sticking to yeah. uh, human performance. So, uh, that was, yeah, the more the physical stuff. I was like, I think I'd rather stick with personal training. And so that was kind of a thought for a little bit. And then I saw occupational therapy and I was like, oh man, I've heard of that before. I was like, let me, let me look into it. And like, I thought they worked with kids. And so looked into it, started research and I was like, oh man, this is, this is what I want to do. This is, this is fundamental stuff. Yeah. Um, and since then, you know, I, I took all the prerequisites, applied, got in first shot, and the rest is history. So it, it's like you said, it, it kind of slapped me in the face, yeah. right? <laughs> um, and I don't know, I'd be interested to, to see if I never had that experience back in high school, if I still would have chose that path. I think so. I feel like I would have, but yeah. I kind of got excited when I recognized the name, you know, recognized the field. I was like, oh, okay, I didn't realize we can do all of this stuff, so... Um, that's how it found me. Yeah, it's interesting. I always find it fascinating because it's not, I mean, you, you see a lot of people complaining about how it doesn't get a lot of media coverage, so not many people know what mm -hmm. it is and that sort of thing. So generally, when I ask people that, that question, it's it's always quite often like on accident, they just sort of stumbled across it and then all of a sudden it was like, oh, that looks interesting. And then they do further research and find out, hey, this might be for me kind of thing. So it's not like yeah. it's not like you know most people's, I guess, knowledge around say being a GP or something is probably from a TV show, um, right? That oh, kind yeah. of thing. Um, so yeah, it's it's always I always find it fascinating how people sort of come across it, and probably oh, yeah. says a lot about the profession itself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> All those common, you know, threats. it's <laughs> it's funny. I have I I, I push. I push it so much now. Right. So, you know, I have lots of little cousins and younger people who I know who they're like, what, are, like, what do you want to be? They go, oh, I want to be like a surgeon, a doctor. I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, you want to be an OT. You want to be an OT. Listen to me. And, you know, I've had, I've had a couple people actually go for it. A, a cousin of mine actually sent me a text message yesterday and, and she had gotten in one of the schools in the state. So, um, that's awesome. She went for it and she got it. I, I'm, I'm so excited for her. So I push it every chance I get. Yeah. Nice. You know? So where did you, where did you go once you graduated? What was your first sort of work area? What was your, your passion? What was your calling? Well, I knew I really wanted to do neuro, right? So anything brain and spinal cord, part of that was because that's what I was comfortable with. The, the program that I went to, um, was pretty neuro heavy. You know, we had a neuro clinic where um, people would come in and allow students to get their, their hands on them. So, you know, before I, I had graduated or before I even did field work, I had a chance to work with um, a couple of different people with strokes, um, uh, gunshot wounds to the head, brain injury, TBI, stuff like that. And so I was more familiar with that than anything else, just because of what our program had to offer. So mm. I was... I, I kind of had that in the back of my head. I had done my final field work in an outpatient neuro program, um, which was kind of the same thing that we did in that neuro clinic when I was at school. And so it was like, man, this is, this is perfect. This is what I'm comfortable with. And so 
that was the goal. And it just so happened once I did graduate, take the boards, I got online, started looking at what was available. And there was an opening for a clinic that I had heard about, uh, that I heard was pretty intense. Um, and it was an outpatient day neuro program where the, the patients could come and they can get occupational therapy, physical therapy, speech therapy, social work. They have um, a, a neuropsychiatrist that works there also. So, um, you know, they can come and, and get everything that mm. they would need. And that was open. And I was like, oof, like that would be, that would be like the dream job right there. So let me just stick in an application. I don't have a ton of experience, but let me try it. Ended up getting the job, um, but it was right as COVID started. So that was, eh, you know, I guess like the first couple months, I, I, I believe it was before September of 2020, graduated yeah. in May of 2020. And so they had to actually come back in and revoke the offer because they didn't have the caseload anymore yeah, yeah. because patients decided to, to stay home. And so I was like, oof, okay, that that kind of sets me back. I wasn't expecting that. And so I had the opportunity to go in and work part-time doing uh, inpatient neuro at the clinic that I did my field work in. Um, just instead of the outpatient side, I was on the inpatient side, did that for three months. So I never really had that downtime. Yeah. And then I started, I started back in January of 2021 um, before my injury. Which which happened to be the week after I started, so that threw threw me for a loop. For yeah, because sure. then I I got in and then I was out. Yeah, that must have been. Yeah, that would have been. Obviously, you had a lot of other things on your mind, but that's that's a pretty big spanner in the works. That one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so uh, it was. It was interesting. It wasn't. I don't know how long after the injury uh happened as you sent me an email saying hey this has happened to me sort of an ot perspective from the other side of the fence um yeah so what are you able to tell us what what happened what 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 happened what was your experience so it was i'll try to set it up so you know you can kind of about imagine the time of my life that i was you know starting a starting a career finally out of school well, to get through school, I worked doing some coppersmithing, right? So we make um, big copper art pieces, mostly uh, fountains and stuff. And uh, I worked there uh, at a little shop, just me and, and an older guy who taught me the trade. Uh, that's how I, I worked my way through college. And I did it on the weekends during grad school. And so I knew that starting that uh, you know, new full-time work was going to have me busy and I wouldn't have the time to go into the shop anymore, but it was something that I really enjoyed doing. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, well, look, let me, I'm going to set up a little small metal shop at the house and I'll be able to, you know, come in and make some things, um, you know, after work sometimes, sometimes on the weekend. And so I was in the process of setting up that shop. I was actually building a table. Um, and I had, I, I, bought this tool that I knew was looked sketchy, looked dangerous. It was a, it was a, a disc that went on my angle grinder. That was uh, a chainsaw. Basically it was for power carving. Right. And so I, I bought it so I could, you know, shape out some molds and wood and hammer stuff in it. 
well, I'm building this table and, and things aren't quite fitting together and uh, I'm in a rush. It's Sunday evening. I got to get ready for work. I have a football game to watch. And so I pull out that tool. I said, man, I can make everything fit if I shave this wood down with this. So I pull it out, start it up, start shaving a little wood away. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, man, this thing works. This thing works well. All of a sudden the, the tool kicks back, cuts my hand. It pulls across this finger so my my ring, ring finger. finger cuts my my middle finger and really chops up my index finger and that's on my left dominant hand and when it happened i was like oh no you know it, it, it i was wearing the gloves i was doing the things you were supposed to do but um you know my initial thought about the tool was right and so i felt it hit my hand turn the tool off throw it on the ground i take a look at my glove and i see that there's some blood coming out on one of the fingers and, and that it had busted open. I'm like, Oh man, shoot, I might have to go and get stitches. And, and that was the extent of mm. what I thought the injury was. And cause you don't feel anything, right? Yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not feeling pain. I'm not feeling anything. So I went ahead and I pulled my glove off. And when I pulled my glove off, my, my index finger fully snapped down into flexion at the, the PIP joint and I couldn't move it. I could see the bone uh, and so I completely lacerated all the tendons and I knew exactly what happened. Right. I was like, Oh man, like I, I sliced up all my tendons. Um, we got to go to the hospital. So ran inside, grabbed my mom. I was like, mom, we got to go. <laughs> I was like, I cut all my tendons. I was like, I'm gonna have to get surgery. We have to go. So went to the hospital Sunday evening. They take x-rays. They take a look and said, Oh yeah, man, you really, you really botched it up. And so what I did was um, I, you know, when they took the x-ray, I realized that I'd actually fractured the bone as well. I didn't just cut the tendons, which yeah. is something I, I didn't consider. I saw, you know, okay, my fingers down in deflection. I can't extend it. I cut my extensor tendon. Yeah. Well, he says, you have a little fracture too on both your fingers. And I was like, Ooh, okay. That's, I wasn't expecting that. And so, what happened was I had a hairline fracture on the DIP of my middle finger. And then at the PIP of my index finger, I actually blew the, blew the bone out. So it wasn't in there anymore. Yeah. So there was nothing that they could repair. Um, and so that's when it kind of hit me. He showed me the x-ray and I was like, oof, like that chunk of, chunk of bone is, is gone yeah, you know and that's yet. when it kind of yeah something that that's not supposed to look like that it was pretty odd i'm not a doctor but yeah i'm, I'm pretty sure there's supposed, sure there's to, supposed be to be something there. in the middle there yeah <laughs> exactly and so that joint was gone and so that's when i kind of was like "Ooh, okay this is worse than i thought like i was already kind of planning in my head like okay you know i'll be out of work i have to get this tendon repair i, I know that's six, eight weeks, whatever the textbook says. And I'm like, man, and I, and I just started. So I, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm back to square one. And then it kind of, you know, sitting there like in the bed, kind of he's the, the emergency room doctor is calling around trying to see if we can get a specialist in, you know, that evening to, to do a surgery, which he wasn't able to find. So he told me, he said, man, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to have to stitch you up and you're gonna have to go find a specialist, uh, a, a different time and so i'm like oh, okay um but i know at that point that whatever's happening in there is permanent right so i know that that finger is not going to move because if you don't have a joint hmm. you know 
it can't <laughs> it can't move. Yeah. So that's kind of when I was like, okay, this is a little worse than I thought, right? Um, so you, you described that first part sounding very calm and collected, were you? I was cool as a cucumber. Uh, I was, you know, I, I knew exactly what was going on. I knew it was six to eight weeks and I was like, okay, I get to do occupational therapy. I yep. know I'll go see an occupational therapist. They're going to, you know, they'll work in hand therapy. They're going to, they're going to get me fixed up. And okay. so, you know, I was the, the main thing that I was worried about at that time was I can't go to work tomorrow. Yeah. You know, yep. like that's, that was, that was the main problem. But that all, that's all running through my head before I get home. Then once I get home, I realize, oh, man, like, this is where my job comes into play, like, as an OT, because I had to take a shower that night. Yep. <laughs> I had to get my clothes off, had to do all these things. And, you know, then not, at this point, the pain had gone, yeah. you know, um, I couldn't use that hand, still kind of unsure what of what I couldn't i didn't know what i couldn't do right they, they kind of had stitched me up and and sent me home yep um i was talking to a friend a, a friend of mine who i actually met in the, in the therapy clinic and he told me he said it, i was telling him about my experience he said it sounds like you went on a sunday evening to the er i was like oh yeah he was like, oh yeah they'll stitch you up and send you home and you know they'll worry about you on monday <laughs> and i was like eh, well yeah that's, that's about right so and so it wasn't until i let it like I started marinating on all these things that I couldn't do that, you know, I kind of realized, like, oh man, this is, this is like my occupation. This is my job. I have to get people back to you yeah. know, the people that I work with, find themselves in this situation at some point or another. Um, and that's when my mind started going all over the place, you know? So you're obviously your dominant hand, it pretty much would have affected everything that you attempted to do everything and i'm and i'm very left-handed yeah you know and so I, I initially that that first night i was you know in my head i was like okay how am i going to take this shower okay uh how am i going to get my clothes on and i was like kind of laughing i was like okay look it's it's good for me to to work with my one-handed techniques like i do this all the time every day single hand dressing we're gonna we're gonna make this happen and so, you know, I kind of laughed, I kind of felt good. Well, then I woke up the next day and then I was like, okay, well, shoot. Okay. What else do I have to do? Like, how am I going to, you know, I'm setting up a metal shop. Am I ever going to be able to, to hammer again? How am I going to, how am I going to write? You know, I, I hold my pen with my right hand. And at this point, I didn't know if I was going to have the function of, of three fingers on my hand or four yep. or three and a half at, at this point. But I have, I have no idea. Uh, I was thinking about, you know, I have, I have too many hobbies really, but, uh, you know, uh, I exercise every day. <laughs> I don't, you know, I, I had to figure out, can I do a pull-up? Can I hold on to a dumbbell anymore? Like, is all that going to change? Um, can I play my guitar? You know, I can't run my fingers down the frets anymore because, you know, I can't make the shape of a chord. Yeah. Um, just all these different things. And I found it interesting that, pretty quickly after my focus started to be on leisure pretty much exclusively okay. like, how am i going to do the things that i want it wasn't necessarily self-care yep. you know i was like i can i can figure that out i'll get my clothes on i'll i'll get these things but what about these things that like 
I really like to do. What about these things where I like to spend my free time yep. doing, you know, um, that's where I started to have to get creative. Cause I was like, I don't want to not do them. Right. But you know, you have all these restrictions now with, you know, tendon repair, uh, fracture, you have to let bones heal. Mm. And so I had to really kind of, really a bad patient is what I was, you know, when I, when I finally got in the clinic. See, I, 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 almost, I would disagree. And I, I think what that highlights is that maybe we've looking, we've been looking at things wrong as therapists, because I know mm-hmm. even in my own practice from way back in the day, like the first thing you want to tick off is that, you know, can they do all their self care and are they safe at home doing, you know, the, the usual stuff. And then you move on to the stuff that they, they actually want to do where mm-hmm. I, I think later in my clinical practice, I, I kind of flipped that on its head. And, and like you described, that seems to be the priority for most people. It's like, it's not like, oh my God, how am I ever going to have a shower? It's how am I going to play with my kids or how am I going to, you know, drive my car? It's all of those sort of extra things mm-hmm. that tend to be the the big priorities because they're the things I think the the reason is they're the things that create our identity. No one is like, oh, I'm Brock and I'm the shower taker. Like no one cares <laughs> about that. Like like you said, like you'll find a way, whether it's anything from hosing yourself down in the backyard to having a sponge bath to modifying a shower. Mm-hmm. Like there's a way to do that. And uh, for a lot of self-care stuff, you can walk into any assistive tech shop and there's a thousand different options that anyone can walk in off the street and get. Like they don't need generally a lot of sort of specialists, you know, you don't need a, a doctorate degree or a master's degree to show someone how to shower. 99% of the time, people can work that stuff out on their own. It's the more complex stuff like setting up a metal shop. Like how the hell does someone do that with, one hand for now and then like possibly limited function in the second hand down the track i don't yeah i don't think that makes you a bad patient i think that highlights more i think where ot's should be putting more of their energy especially to start with because what Mm -hmm. the other thing and i don't know i'd be interested if your experience aligns with this the other thing with my clinical experience i found was when i focused on the stuff that they wanted to do there was carryover into all that boring shit anyway so, oh, yeah. you know, if they wanted to, I don't know, anything, leisure, like setting up your shop, there would be some movements or adjustments made that you could, so you could work in your metal shop that they would be like, oh, wait, this will also help me, I don't know, put on socks or put on shoes kind of thing. There's carryover into that stuff, whereas the other way around, probably not as much. Yeah, no, I I, I would agree 100%. And, and you know, I... I try to remember that like in my practice, luckily I work in outpatient. So I have the opportunity to see, you know, sometimes more high level people. We, you know, we're not necessarily tracking every single minute like you would Mm. on an inpatient unit. And so I have the opportunity to like, I'll bring things, you know, I bring drills and, you know, we bring hammers and we cook, you know, we, we, we cook some of like the, the, the cuisine we have down here, like things that are, are meaningful to people and, you know, and documentation, you know, we talk about how that helps improve their coordination. You know, they have coordination goals and we, we address mm. them through the occupations that they, that, that are meaningful to them, you know? Um, now I'd be interested 
to see what you think about this because you know my experience is mostly with people who have some kind of neurological condition not necessarily people who have orthopedic you know restriction mm. and stuff and so one of the things that had kind of frustrated me was you know they say you, you can't use this finger for you know, six weeks, you know, you can start active range of motion at this week. You can do light passive range of motion at this week, but you certainly can't use it, you yep. know, keep it in the splint throughout the day and you can take it off to bathe and wash your wound, but then put it back on. And I was like, man, like, that's just, it's, it's, to me, it was more like what their recommendations were was more, more like occupational deprivation, mm -hmm. right. As opposed to promoting participation. Uh, in these things, even if it had to be a different way. And so I was like, man, I'm not going to sit around for eight weeks, you know, and that's when in my head, I'm like, okay, am I a bad patient or am I, you know, a good OT or am I assuming these extra risks because I know it's on me. Mm. Um, and so what I did was, you know, I knew I couldn't, I wasn't supposed to use my hands for anything. I was supposed to wear, um, a certain splint at all times that held my MCPs and deflection. The, the splint that I was made was a, a, a dorsal based hand splint that kind of just was, was on the top of my palm, ran over the MCPs, held me down into flexion a little bit and kept my PIPs and DIPs extended on my uh, index and middle fingers. Mm -hmm. and, and so really the only two, the only three fingers that were working were, you know, down here. And I couldn't do much with, with just three fingers, you know, particularly the things that I wanted. Like I was, I was just getting into mountain biking, you know, mm -hmm. I can't hold my hammers and use my tools with just three fingers. And so, um, I started making different splints myself for different activities yep. uh, because I knew the, I knew the precautions. Yep. And so I was like, let me figure out a way to do this as safely as I can, because I'm going to do it either way. And so I had my doctor splint. I had a splint that I use for fishing, right? Where okay. I can hold my fishing pole. I had uh, my shop splint that I use for, you know, doing all my metalworking and stuff that I had to make out of, you know, different materials. So I started thinking, because I have to work with, you know, torches and mm. heat and I can't have, you know, thermoplastic, thermoplastic splint material near, I mean, you can't keep it in the sun. I can't keep it by a torch, right? Yeah, so. Yeah. Uh, I had different splints for different things, you know, two weeks after my, my tendon surgery. And so I feel like if I were to tell that to my OT or my doctor, you know, they would have had a heart attack and, you know, started their documentation. You know, I, I educated patient to, to, you know, not complete task X, Y, or Z. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I was, there, there was some people who I've talked about, they're like, oh no, you can't when someone has restrictions, you can't give them an inch because they'll, they'll take a mile. Right. And so I was like, yeah, okay, I get it. So in other words, you know, you can't, you know, don't do whatever you're going to do anyway, mm. but I'm now coming from the perspective of if you are going to do it anyway, let's figure out how you can do it safely. Right. As yeah. opposed to not doing it at all. Yeah, and that, that's that's interesting. Like, I I don't know the the evidence base with enhanced therapy. I've never worked in hands. I did a, like a short stint, like on one of my placements, but um, 
I completely get where you're coming from. Um, my first instinct is, yeah, like I, I think your way is probably a better way. Again, like I don't know the evidence base. My mm-hmm. theory, without having a look at it, would be probably the sort of best practice is more around how can we get people better without any risk at all. Um, yeah. Which, you know, probably would be very structured because that's what research has to be in order to be replicatable. It has to be structured, which is a struggle for OT because not everyone is the same. So everybody is going to be different. So, um, yeah, I feel like what you've tapped into there is, I guess, kind of the mental health side of that rehabilitation in that general best practice hand therapy is probably also taking away that person's locus to control in that they don't have any control over their treatment, their rehab, their life at that stage because they're essentially being dictated to by whatever the best practice standard is or the process is. Um, sure. I've, it's interesting because um, you describing your different splints reminds me there's a, a, a guy in Australia uh, called Paul de Gelder. He was an ex-Navy diver who got attacked by a shark, lost his hand, lost one leg, um, and he's kind of like a motivational speaker now. And he, he has different uh, prosthetics for different activities. Like he's got his sprinting leg and he's got his diving leg, which has like a flipper like attached to it. He's got, you know, all these different... He's, same with his arms. He's got like just his general hand. He's got a hand for weightlifting, which is like a... Uh, got like a hook clip thing that he can clip over a barbell, that kind of stuff. Um, mm. And it sort of got me thinking like, why is that? Yeah, like he's amazing and he's an inspirational speaker because he doesn't have that hand. So we're giving him these prosthetics so he could do those activities. Why is it any different for someone who's still has their hand and is recovering from an injury? Why are we... Not even just obviously the different injuries, so you treat them differently, but why do we even look at those as different? Why can that person, like, yes, we're going to build all these things so they can do everything they want, whereas this person, no, you're not allowed to do anything for six to eight weeks and you can't even move this joint and it has to be completely immobilized, which, you know, like you said, there's going to be periods where maybe it has to be for, you know, a few hours a day or you're not allowed, you know, it's going to hurt if you overdo it kind of thing while it's still in recovery. But I, especially with the the splinting idea, I think that's genius. Being able to create something, like essentially like a prosthetic, that either shares that load or takes the load in place of you know injured fingers, injured digits, that kind of thing, so that you can keep doing your activity. Like that's, to me, that's like, core ot right right and then and that's what i mean yeah and then you're, you're still able to engage in all the stuff that you actually love to do right and that's that's when you know once i was able to once i had my splints and i kind of practiced and you know i remember the first time i went out out fishing after my after the accident with the splint on everything went perfectly i mean it was kind of weird mm. kind of scary but i did it and it was you know, it was a good day, but I felt 6,000 times better, you know, that I was, cause then I was like, okay, I'm missing, I'm missing 
months of, of, of work, which, which put me down, but in this off time, like I'm going fishing, <laughs> right. Mm. You know, so I can, I can take advantage of it now that I have like the proper tools, but at the same time, you know, it's, it's easy for me to say as someone who kind of has the capability of like making splints, I had access to different materials because of where I worked and, mm -hmm. you know, um, but if I was, you know, I, I try to think like, okay, well, if, if when I go back to work, you know, if I have someone who's in a similar situation and they have some kind of restriction or precaution, I can't, do I, do I assume this liability, you know, because it's them and it's not me. Right. Um, you know, and I'm not going to sue myself, mm. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, uh, I, I wouldn't know how to handle it. Right. And so like, let's say I did work in orthopedics and, you know, the doctor sent over an order that said, you know, Hey, I'm like, you know, for the first three weeks, immobile start range of light range of motion at week four, whatever I'm making, you know, making numbers yeah, yeah. up, but you know, I would have to stick to that. Right. You know, I, I don't, I don't know what we can do from like a, a clinician standpoint to, to overcome that besides you know, keep an eye out for, for new evidence, right. Right. Mm. Uh, to see if we can, um, you know, educate even, you know, even surgeons and physicians, like uh, I can give an example of when I was on my, my field work, I did an acute rotation, um, at, at one of the hospitals and I, my, my clinical instructor was, she worked mostly on the orthopedic unit. So I spent a lot of time on the orthopedic unit and, we saw a lot of heart surgeries. So a lot of sternotomies after the sternotomies, you know, you have those sternal precautions where mm. you can't push, you can't pull, you can't lift your arms over your head. So it changes everything you do. I mean, it changes the way you, you stand up from a chair, mm. right? Nevertheless, like put your clothes on. And I was always so frustrated because, you know, people wanted to, I, I remember specifically a, a guy who worked on a farm, he wanted to get on his tractor, but he couldn't reach out in front of him and pull himself up. Mm. Um, you know, and so I had someone come to me because I had to do an in-service. I had to do an in-service before I, I finished that rotation. And they said, you know, I was kind of talking to this and said, you should, you should look up these, these kind of upcoming new precautions for, for sternotomies. And I was like, okay. Um, and so I did, and there's this thing called, what is it? It's like keep your move in the tube, I believe is what it's called. Have you ever heard of that? No. It's, it's the most interesting thing, and I got so excited. I, you know, I, I, I dorked out when I, when I read all this stuff. <laughs> yep. And so, you know, classic external precautions are you can't push, you can't pull, you yep. can't reach your arms out to the side, you can't reach your arms up to your head, so you can't even wash your hair, yeah, yeah. right? Specifically on, on some of the handouts, it says don't have someone help you wash your hair for six to eight weeks, whatever that might be, which is which sounds ridiculous, right? Um, because and or open doors, you know, you can't you can't swing a car door open, which is going to happen, yeah. right? And so these, the, the concept, oh, and you have load bearing restrictions too. So you can't lift over mm -hmm. a gallon of milk, eight pounds, whatever it might be. And so there's a, a lot of new research coming out about this concept of keep your move in a tube that's based on um, more biomechanics and kinesiological principles. Uh, I don't know that, that that's a word. I might've made that up, but um, you know, how your body moves yeah, basically. Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't place a load bearing restriction on you 
and it doesn't place a range of motion uh, restriction on you. And it doesn't place uh, like a time, it doesn't say, you know, oh, so do this for a certain yeah. amount of time. Yeah. And what it is, it's they tell you to pretend like your body is, is, is in a tube, like someone had slipped a cylinder on top of you. Mm -hmm and do all of your movements within there. Because if, you're, if your elbows, if your arms are adducted to your side, you shouldn't have any sternal pressure, anything mm. that's gonna cause that, that wound to, yeah. to, Exactly, mm. exactly. And so, you know, in other words, they, they teach you how to move within that tube and do the things that you want within that, you know, your imaginary yeah. tube to participate in what you want. And to me, I was like, Oh my gosh, like this is OT. Like I can, I could have, if I would have known this and I would have I educated the doctor on this, I could have, you know, taught my farmer how to get on his tractor mm. while staying in his tube. Yeah. He could have done his housework. He could close the doors on his truck. You know, like we were, we were telling people literally not to do anything, Yeah, have help, have help washing your hair, you know? Uh, and they, we, because of the, liability uh you know i never had the opportunity to teach those patients uh you know you can you can wash your hair just when you do it keep your arms in mm. you know that's all it would have taken to to change these people's lives especially at least during their recovery you know yeah. that's that's, that's the at, you know look at how many weeks look at how many other things that opens up that they can do just from that simple mm -hmm. change in technique Mm -hmm. You can hold your baby all of a sudden. Yeah. You can hold your grandchild. You can play with play with those kids. Yeah. You know, it, it's it's promoting occupation as opposed to depriving people of occupation in that recovery phase. And so uh, that's that's kind of you know the when I think about what can we do to um, have have our our patients or our clients like participate as much as they can it's like you know i feel like we need to continue to look at the research and and uh you know come up with new ideas and see if someone would be willing to do research on on different mm. you know different things and so um which is hard you yeah know, it's hard it's not necessarily like the fun part for me right and see, uh, see i think and i i've never made any sort of I've never been shy about expressing the fact that I've never been a huge fan of hand therapy um, sure. for that exact reason in that. So my literally only experience with it, aside from like talking to hand therapists and stuff was on placement. And it was, this person's coming in with this injury. You look it up in a book. It tells you which splint to make and which exercises they have to do. And you see them in two weeks to adjust the splint in case it like you know deforms or whatever. And I'm like, anyone anyone who's got that book can do this like it's even got instructions right. on how to make the splint and a template like i like a monkey can do this and there's right. no occupation in it like it's not i didn't even ask like what was you know what's this injury like oh, he'd had a carpal release surgery so like his wrist was essentially immobilized the guy i remember seeing um and I'm like, I, there wasn't even any like, what is this actually stopping you do? What do you like to do that you can't do because at the moment you're still recovering from this this surgery? Um, there's nothing. And I'm like, what? how is that OT? Like everything else I'd learned about OT and 
using occupations and finding out about what people love to do and finding ways for them to get back into that. I'm like, I don't, I could never see how those two things lined up. And what you've just described to me, I'm like, that's what hand therapy from an OT, because obviously it can be delivered by other people, like, oh, it can be delivered by other sure. professions in other countries. Anyway, I don't know what it's like in the States, but. Um, yeah, you can be, uh, you can be a physical therapist yeah, and be an OT, but I think something like 75, 80 yeah. something percent of, of they're all OTs. Yeah. Uh, Oh, just like that's what it should be. It should be tailoring that service to the individual and what they want to actually achieve from it, whether that's a, a permanent thing, in which case it might be sort of more on the orthotics, uh, oh, sorry, orthopedics, not orthotics, orthopedics mm-hmm. side of things. Um, or like you, during that sort of rehab process, like here's what I want to do with my life. I don't want to sit at home and go, oh, my hand doesn't work. Can't do anything mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and get depressed and everything that comes along with occupational deprivation. Mm-hmm. That's what OT should be doing. But you're right in that. And I could be very wrong, but I feel like this is a much bigger issue in the States just due to how your health system's designed. But that mm-hmm. liability seems to be the, I guess, fence that's stopping any growth away from the status quo at the moment because you have to try and maintain the same level of risk averseness as the current evidence base which is practically no risk is allowed at all Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. while trying new things and unfortunately with something like what you've just described, there's no way to do it without risk. Like you, what you're researching is what the risks are. So there's no way to do that without exposing people to risks. And I mean, I'm sure there's some very complex way with waivers and, you know, experimental design and all that sort of stuff that it could be done, but it's not accessible to like, it wouldn't be super accessible. I wouldn't think to just say a, a team of clinicians say, Hey, we're going to do this research project, trying this slightly different method, and see what the results are. Mm-hmm. I feel like yeah, so- the, the, the risk to the individual from litigation is massive. It, and it's scary. I mean, it's something that, you know, I think about it every day. Mm. You know, I've been deposed before. I've worked for less than a year. I've been, you know, deposed. I've had people talk about lawsuits, not necessarily for me, but you know, it's, it's something that happens with a lot of the people that you work with, you know, especially if like, there was an accident, right. There's opportunities there for people to make, you know, money. Uh, some, sometimes it's justified. Sometimes it's like, oh, I think people are just kind of taking a shot in the dark. And so people are scared to mess up, right. Mm-hmm. People are scared to take that risk. And I understand. Um, and so that's a frustration with trying to, I consider it more like, aggressive therapy, you know, I'm not talking about like physically aggressive, but you know, like actually making people do things instead of hold off for a while. Mm. Um, But I find another problem, particularly in the outpatient setting that, um, you know, I I know our our health insurance system is set up very, very differently from, from most people's, uh, you know, most other countries. And uh, we run into the problem where different insurances cover different things. Mm. Right. Uh, you know, people will get denied 
their, their medically necessary therapy if I work on something involving leisure, mm. right? Insurance companies won't let you work on leisure. Uh, you'll have to, some of them, some of them may, you know, but I can't, if I work on, like, let's say I, I go outside and cast a fishing pole down here, which is, is something that's meaningful to a lot of people. And so we go outside and we work on our standing balance and coordination, grip strength. We work on uh, trunk rotation, you know, setting the hook on fish because we, you know, we're in South Louisiana. We have a ton of rivers. We have canals. We mm. have lakes. We have the Gulf of Mexico where people go out on their boats, you know. And so we go out and we do those things. But if 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 I wrote a goal, I can't write. A, I can't. I can't write a write a therapy goal yeah. for, for someone to return to fishing because it's not medically necessary. Yeah. Right. They want. They want ADLs. They want the self care. Uh, some of them are okay with like medication management, but it gets to be a stress. There's only so many times you can document, uh, you know, uh, you know, you, you did a, a cooking task so that their coordination would improve more for medication management, increase independence with medication mm, yeah. management. You know, it, it's, it's tricky and we have to, to skirt a thin line and there's things that we can't do because if, it is a focus of therapy, then people will get denied. And so we have to find that balance of doing what's fine, figuring out what's best for the patient. You know, do we take less risks and, and try to ensure that they're in therapy as long as possible and get them, you know, maybe, you know, I don't want to say not high quality care, but, you know, leave some, some stones unturned. Right. And it's particularly frustrating to me an outpatient because, we're their last line of defense. Mm. You know, they've gone through their, they've gone through their inpatient rehab. They've done acute. A lot of people have had their home health therapy and uh, you know, they come see outpatient for us to, to finish things off and set them up for the rest of their lives. And uh, you know, if there's just, there's so many barriers and things that I think a lot of therapists are nervous about um, that, I think oftentimes, you know, some good opportunities to work on meaningful things get passed over. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, I've spoken about it a few times uh, on the podcast. Like, I think that's one of the issues that you're going to find, which is, I have no idea how you're going to get past it with essentially what is a a privatized health system. Like everything is a for-profit health system. Whereas, um, like our health system here, yes, there is still private insurance, but we have a full coverage of public health. And then your private insurance is if you wanted sort of more choice or, you know, choice of Mm -hmm. surgeon and choice of that or choice of hospital, that sort of stuff. But if you Mm -hmm. can't afford insurance, then you're covered by the public health service anyway. And the majority of OTs, uh, who work in like hospitals and rehabs and that sort of stuff would work for the public health service here. Um, yeah. In like my experience, obviously in mental health, and I know that in a lot of the teams that I've worked in, like we would have the freedom to try some of those new things. And like I've tried new things um, with some of my patients in the past, uh, obviously with them agreeing and it's well within scope and all of that sort of stuff, but it's not it's not at a point where like, oh my God, I can't do that because then the care's going to get cut off kind of thing, which is, sure. I mean, I've heard that from talking with a, a lot of people in America. Like that's, to me, that's just like so drastic. 
And I'm yeah. like, it's a, it's a fine line you have to, yeah. to kind of walk on, you know, and it's, it's frustrating also. It, it, and it's hard to juggle for therapists. You know, some, some clinics, I guess, have case managers, but you know, in my experience in the clinic that I'm working at right now, um, which is, which is great. You know, the, the clinic is, is incredible. We do great things for people. Um, but we're, you know, our therapists, we do our case management, you know, mm. so we deal with insurance companies. And so um, we have to kind of figure out, okay, this person has this insurance, they don't cover, they don't cover this, they're very picky about this, they will deny you if you do this. And so you kind of have to look at what insurance companies mm. people come with to determine what you can and can't do, which is frustrating, because it's, it's an additional barrier. Yeah, right? That, that's just I can't even comprehend that because essentially your treatment plan is being guided by something other than client need yeah yeah and we'll make phone calls you know we we call on behalf of our patients who who get denied you know we write appeals all the time and our our therapists are 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 fierce you know when it when it comes to to calling the insurance companies and you, you pretty much have to debate you know one of the one of the workers there as to why you're you're patient needs their medically necessary services mm. you know um and it, it's so frustrating but you have to keep you know and generally we talk to like the same people uh from the insurance companies because oftentimes it's the same companies who do deny people and so you have to advocate and kind of get nasty with some of these people um but also try to like maintain a decent relationship because you'll be talking to them you know after they approve six more visits and they deny again and you need more you may be calling back and so you have to try to keep a, a decent relationship with these people yeah, and yeah. so it's it's so frustrating particularly when you want to be more aggressive and try to work on things outside of self-care uh without yeah. feeling like you're doing the wrong thing you know um and so it's just it's very tricky um, but I mean, it's kind of the, the hand that we're dealt over here, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. I don't, I don't know how I would manage I'm probably just, I mean, cause I've never worked in a situation like that, but it just seems so, I don't know. To me, I guess healthcare is always, it's about people. And that just seems like the complete opposite. Yeah. Like to me, that just screams like it's about money, uh, mm -hmm. and not about mm -hmm. people. And yes, I know like yeah. our private insurers here, they're definitely about money. Like the even like the big thing over here is that prices keep going up and what they actually cover is getting less and less. But we've always yeah. got that backup of the public system. Um, right. So even if you were to cancel, you know, your private insurance because it got too expensive, you've still got health cover. You're not going to... Uh, like miss out on something that you like is medically necessary and quite often mm -hmm. those rehab ots by the sounds of it probably have in the public system probably have a little bit more uh, freedom yes they're probably they're a lot more restricted than if you were to be able to sort of privately fund your own therapist to sure. treat you completely but um you know that'd be the same everywhere is yeah. there much of a I guess that kind of full private market for those kinds of therapies, I would imagine. Probably. You're talking about like private, like, like private pay, private pay. Yeah. 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 Generally there, there is a lot of people don't do it. Yeah. Um, 
uh, just because, you know, going rate, I know in our clinic, if you want a private pay, you can, but it's a hundred dollars per session per, um, you know, per person. So like, let's say you come in our, let's say you were denied by your insurance company. You're coming to our clinic for, uh, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and speech therapy. If you want to come back and get those three disciplines, mm. that's $300 a day, Yeah, you know, for, for three hours of therapy. And for some people it's feasible. You know, I had a guy today who, whose insurance denied him, um, you know, a, a spinal cord injury. Um, and he told me, he said, I may come do private pay, you know, because what y'all do here, you know, my, my wife can't do at home. Um, and so, you know, it's an option, but it's just, you know, not everybody can do it. Most people can't do it. Right. I mm. couldn't do it. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's, it's kind of tricky. We do have a, um, you know, for, for lower income people. And I guess it depends on the state that you're in because it's a, it's a, it's more of a state, program that's subsidized partially by the federal government but it's yep. a, it's the medicaid system that's for lower income people who can't afford uh insurance or don't have uh health insurance through their employer yep they can be covered but when it comes to getting services like occupational therapy or, or any therapy in general even just seeing like doctors um m- most doctors most people don't see Medicaid patients, or if they do, they see only a certain number because the uh, the reimbursement rate from the yeah, from the Medicaid insurance is so much lower, and so uh, you know it's kind of hard to to keep the doors open if you if you take a ton of, of Medicaid patients, which yeah, is unfortunate yeah. because there's you know you just fall through the cracks, especially when you work in something like like neuro where people have a stroke or, or a spinal cord injury in there completely completely unmanaged you know uh oftentimes they'll go on like a wait list like a medicaid wait list or something for a clinic that they're trying to get in and they'll get in months six months down the road and you know that that crucial window window of where you need your therapy is gone right and so it's it's frustrating We 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 got to clean some things up for sure um but again, it's, it's, you know, it's supposed to be about people, but sometimes it's not. Yeah. And I guess it's like, like, well, I mean, we, every health system has its challenges and I always teach my students, like you've got to do what you can within the restrictions that you're in. And obviously, you know, it's the same with you guys. Like you've got this certain type of restrictions. You got to do the best you can within that, that system. And like you would describe before, like it might involve a lot more like advocating with, insurance companies and that kind of stuff um getting back to your experience so you made all these i ranted a bit no no that's i I like a good (laughs) i like a good sidetrack um you you made all these splints you're engaging in um the the, i guess at least some of the occupations that you really wanted to did you find that that had any sort of carryover into your sort of general day-to-day ADL type stuff or was that a completely different uh, problem to solve or? Well, the ADL part, you know, general self-care stuff, it came easy. One, because I already knew the modified technique. I knew, I know how to do, I can, I can put on my clothes with my eyes closed with one hand, you know, cause I work with uh, people with hemiplegia, hemiparesis. And so I, I had all that. Uh, 
I had some trouble with like coordinating these three fingers to put on my Apple watch and mm-hmm. uh, a couple little things like that, but, but nothing major. Um, and especially when this middle finger came back, right. I, I have full function of my, my middle finger at my DIP, uh, like my, my surgery was well, I can grab onto pretty much anything, but my, um, my index is done, yeah. right. It's, it's there. Yep. It's not going to, it's, it's not going to be any help. It's just making up way. the numbers. Yeah. Yeah. It just, you know, it just kind of looks more like a hand, but that, I mean, it may go, it, it may go soon. You yep. know, it depends on, it's, it's expensive to get things cut off, yep. and, but you know, eventually I'll, I'll, I'll I'm going to get it out of the way. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, I tell people, I said, I have gotten back to every single thing that I did before with the exception of, of one thing. And that one thing is that I have not been able to play my guitar okay. because I can't, I can't run down the fretboards. However, I've been having a plan since day one, but I just haven't done it yet. I'm my, my plan is to, you know, I'm, I'm left-handed, but I've, I've always played a right-handed guitar. Right-handed. Right. Yeah. I play it. Yeah. I play it right-handed. You can do a Kurt Cobain. So I'm just going to flip. Yeah. I'm going to get a left-handed guitar. I just haven't bought it yet. And I'm very excited about it. I can't wait to, to, to actually go ahead and do it. Just, you do, know? just, just uh, do what Kurt Cobain did. Flip it over and just restring it the other way. You know, I thought about that. Just see if it'll I work. did think about that. <laughs> what I ended up doing with my guitar is I actually have it in the clinic right now for, uh, we had a, a, a incomplete spinal cord injury patient who had to work on coordination who played his guitar. And I was like, dude, I have a guitar that I'm not using. Let's bring it. Yeah. <laughs> so we brought it in the clinic and that's where it sits. So I actually haven't, haven't played with it, but that's the concept. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's the thing, you know, modify the activity. Yeah. And see, that's like, I, I think that's super cool. That literally out of, like you said, you've got a ton of hobbies and you obviously do a lot mm-hmm. of different things outside of the usual like, oh, work and self-care and all of that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's the that's like the last piece of the puzzle, like everything. And I'm assuming there's probably things that you do now that you weren't doing before. Like I just get that feeling from your personality. Probably, yeah. probably. It's um, hard to think. It's hard to keep track. Yeah, and like no one does. No one like this is my right. list of things that I do. <laughs> right. One of my one of my favorite stories about my injury is the way that I had to change my pen grip to hold my to hold my pen. Yep. And the you know, growing up, I mean it was a a type of utensil. I've I've always held my pencil with five fingers. Okay. Right. And so I, it was messed up. I had a, a you know, a flexed wrist, kind of like a little claw thing. And so my entire life I've been picked on and just, I'm, I'm, I mean, roasted about how I hold my, my pen, yeah. you know, like most holding, days. holding it on all fingertips. For uh, holding on all, I, I use, I use all five fingertips to yeah. hold my pen and it's not, it's not right. My, my teachers told me I would never get a job because I didn't know how to hold my pencil. <laughs> I would go to sign the paperwork the and dramatic, they would kick me yeah. out of the door. <laughs> they would buy me special grippers or anything, but anyway, I couldn't do it. And so I never made the change. I was like, well, how all right. And this is what it's going to be. And so once I hurt my finger, you know, I can't flex at my PIP joint and I have to flex it uh, almost all the way with the, the kind of, you know, Group. interesting way yeah. that I hold it then. And so I remember being worried about that because I like to draw. I, I, I like to draw. It's, it's, 
something that's, I don't want to say super important, but every now and then I just, you know, do it to relax myself. And I was like, man, I can't hold my pen. And so I've tried, I started like writing a little journal, like just kind of like what I did every day with my pen when I had it. And I tried to just go ahead and start, well, first I was using three fingers, right? Thumb, pinky, ring finger. And then I transitioned to trying to use thumb, pinky, ring, middle finger, kind of close to how I used to do it. But I could never get it right because my pen would always slip because I, I didn't realize how much I stabilized with my index finger. And so I finally one day decided to go ahead and I, I, now I still hold it with all four fingers, but I put the pen in between my index and middle finger. Uh, and I write like that, What it's, it looks even more funky than my other pen grip because my finger sticks straight out and the fingers crooked. The, I have a mallet finger, uh, you know, my DIP just kind of flops down. And yep. so it looks funny, but now I have an excuse yeah, <laughs> to, yeah. to, have, to be able to hold my pencil. So if someone's like, what's wrong with your hand? Why are you holding your pen like that? I'm like, I cut my fingers off. <laughs> what are you saying? And I make them feel really bad. <laughs> Before it was like, oh, I'm just messed up. But now I'm like, Man, I cut my fingers. What's wrong with you? <laughs> and so it, that actually worked out, you know? So, and I find like my handwriting and everything is exactly the same. Yeah. So you're, you're going to have to come up with another idea if you do get that digit removed. Oh no! If it if it goes away, I I only hold it here. Oh, so and you're so only gonna I get the, it, oh, Okay, so I thought you were gonna get the whole thing removed. Well, there's so there's there there is that option, right? And so this is this will be interesting to you. So hmm. uh, you know, one of the decisions I have to make that I was you know I was thinking about it at the time too is I have to make a decision like like a surgical decision, right? So I could have the doctor gave me different options. He said you can leave it on there you which is how it is right now you know you can leave it on there um and you don't have to do anything you're going to jam it you're going to break it but if if you break it it's not a big deal you know it's gonna you know i'll cut it off then you know it's because you're not going to use it Mm. and so i was like okay he said i can fuse it so he can go back in and put a rod in make it rigid you know a little bit of flexion to where i could you know do a tip pinch um but you still run into the problem that it's going to be in the way, but it's less likely to break because there's a metal rod down the middle, but he said it would straighten it out. You know, it wouldn't be crooked because it's kind of, it's, you know, it's, it's crooked Mm. it's rotated and it has the mallet. And so he said, you know, I can fix all that, but the recovery is 12 weeks before you can even start putting any pressure on it. And so I immediately cross that off. Cause then I'm like, okay, here we go. Here's that more, you can't do this for this long. And I'm like, I'm not going to do it. And if, if, you know, I, I don't want to put myself in that situation and still be jamming it on things. Yeah, yeah. And so the next option would be to amputate at the PIP joint, um, you know, and be left with a nub yep. right there. Um, and so he said, you know, a lot of people do that and it's not a big deal, but people, you know, find that it's not really a functional digit you know you have half a digit it doesn't really do much yeah, anything yeah. and he said and it's you know it, it's aesthetically it's kind of intrusive you know it's like oh there's a you know there's half a finger right there yeah or i could do uh what they call like the ray resection where they go in and they remove yeah, the, the whole finger mcp up to the wrist and then you have uh, you know, three fingers in your thumb and has like a smaller palm. Yep. And he's like, you know, nobody will ever notice. 
you know, you'll, it'll just be normal. You'll, your grip will be fine. Uh, everything will be good. And he's like, that's what I would do. And so I was like, okay, okay, cool. So that's kind of what I was leaning towards. But he told me he's like, once it's gone, it's gone. Yeah, yeah. Right. I can't put anything back. And so I was like, okay, well, let's, let's, I'll, I'll get back to you, you know? And so I started thinking, okay, what do I have to do? What do I want to do? Because my surgery decisions just are going to affect that. And so I was like, well, I was like, I really don't want it to be in the way. Like, right. I don't want to get it. I don't want to just keep it forever. I don't want to get the, the uh, fusion yep. because I'm going to hit it on things, right? I'm going to slam it in a hammer. I'm going to wreck my bike into a tree. I'm going to do something. And it's going to break, you yeah. know? Um, which it, it has, I, I, this thing cracks sometimes and it's not supposed to, cause there's no joint there. And so things, things have been broken. I, I have like calcium buildup where, yeah, yep. you know, I think, I, I think it, it's kind of fractured from jam and I jam it a couple of times a week. Um, and so I was thinking, I started leaning towards the Ray resection. I was like, that just moves everything out the way. But then when I decided that this is going to be the new way that I hold my pen mm. and I kind of use that uh, proximal portion of that index finger uh, proximal of the PIP. Mm. I'm like, Ooh, that's, that's function mm. right there, you know, holding that stabilizing that pen. Yeah. And so now I'm leaning towards, you know, I think I'll probably just eventually amputate at the, at the PIP, get the end of it out of the way and be able to, you know, hold Still my pen. Use your pen and stuff. Um, and I guess if so you do you it can, that and way, and I can too, hold my keys on it. Yeah, yeah, sure. If you do it that way too, you can always <laughs> like get the whole lot done later. Whereas if you go the right. other way around, you can't really like. Oh, I just want to put that bone back in there, please. Can you put my nub back on? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, there, there's nothing I could do there, and so you know, baby steps, baby steps. We'll we'll take one piece at a time. Yeah, I used to know a guy that had that, um, like the full down to the wrist removed, but on his little finger. And it was, oh yeah, it was, um, he had, a, it was an accident when he was a kid or something, but he, um, yeah, like he didn't really notice until one day I was like, saw him holding something and I'm like, where's his little, he's missing a finger. <laughs> I was like holding a cup or something. I'm like, there's just something, something that looks like, I don't know. It's like a Simpsons character or something. Right. They, some people, he told me, the doctor explained it. He said, it's going to look like a dinosaur hand, but you have to pay really close attention to see it. Yeah, like, oh. yeah. Yeah. You don't just okay. notice it sort of out of the corner of your eye kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize how many people had, you know, fingers missing, yeah. parts of fingers missing until I had my injury, particularly when I was like wearing my, my brace. Oh, I had a gym brace too. And so I was, I was at the gym and I had, you know, with this big, weird looking bulky brace on, but trying to do my bench press and, you know, hold onto the bar. And the guy came up to me who I've spoken to, I don't know. I've, I see him four times a week. You know, I've, I've seen him and spoke with him. I, I knew him well. Yeah. He came up to me and said, man, what did you do? I said, oh, I explained him the story. I showed him pictures and everything. And he said, oh, he said, welcome to the club. And he held his hand up. <laughs> he had a, a, a full nub. You know, he was missing his index finger just below the PIP. And I, I'd never noticed. Yeah. Never noticed one time. And he's like, oh, yeah, it happens. Don't worry about that. He said, "You'll be fine." Anyway, any right. any industry that uses saws or anything like that, there's always uh, I've any any time I've ever even been around people that work in that that sort of industry, there's mm -hmm. people missing ends of digits, whole digits, all sorts of stuff. 
Yeah. It's just yeah. A, they get a little bit more exclusive as you get older, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, have... I think this, I think back in the day, there probably wasn't as many safety standards. <laughs> no, I wouldn't think so. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where, you, so how, how's your function with your other fingers now? Like, obviously, you're saying your index finger's cactus, mm-hmm. pretty much. Yep. How, how are the yep. other two? This one's this one's good. Uh, there's a little bit of pain at the DIP if I, you know, push down. Not much. He, the doctor explained it to me. He said, you know, you you fractured the you fractured the the joint right at the DIP. Yeah. Uh, it's going to heal back. Middle with, finger. Yeah, my yeah. middle finger. Yeah. Yep. And he he just kind of said, you know, it's going to have arthritis. Right. Because it's, it's in the joint. There's yeah. really no way around it. Um, he said, but it, it's it, all things considering I, I'm very lucky. I'm lucky it was index finger and not pinky or ring because this is where your gripping power comes mm. from. You know, he said doing your pull-ups after this is, would be very hard. Mm. You yeah, know? Yeah. Uh, if, if I would have cut off pinky or, um, or the ring finger. You know, he said it, most of the stuff is fine motor coordination, but if you can get a hundred percent function of that middle finger back, it's going to take over everything that the index did and you'll have no problems. Yep. Um, and so that's kind of where I am, you know, the, the middle fingers back a hundred percent. It's just the main thing now is jamming this finger, jamming yep. my index yeah, yeah. finger. It, it cracks when I, you know, I wash my hands in between patients trying to hurry and get to my next person. And, you know, I jam it down in the sink because I'm scrubbing hard, yeah. you know, uh, and I can just fall to my knees. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, that's the main thing is just the fact that it's in the way, Yeah. but everything else is, is great. You know, um, I worked you... a lot on my grip, a lot of my grip because <laughs> I was determined to get it back. Have you found, uh, I guess, I'm interested to see like, obviously for you, it's been what, 12 months now? It's it was it was exactly a year on January seventeenth, and so today's the twenty so fifth, so a little over a year. Yeah. Twenty six uh, for you, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. True. Time zone. See, I'm great at them. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> um, <laughs> has the decision to, I guess, have the digit removed or partially, whatever you end up deciding, uh, been something that you've been always like, yeah, okay, if it goes, it goes, or is it something that you sort of because I know uh, working with some people who have had uh, like limbs or injuries where essentially parts have been removed and they kind of go through like a, a grieving process, uh, whether it's, you know, due to motor vehicle accident or work injury or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Had, did you ever have any of that kind of thought around it or it's just because you seem like you're probably the most positive person who's ever had an injury in the world? Maybe, <laughs> but you know, you, you go through that process. I mean, initially I was like, Oh man, like, I can't believe. And you know, you talk to people like in your family and you're like, you know, it's not going to work. Uh, and, and like, like I'll have to cut it off and they get sad. They're like, Oh no, like I can't believe like that, that you did that. Uh, I hate that. I'm so sorry. And all this stuff. And every now and then, you know, I'll think back and like, I can't believe I did that can't believe I did that. I can't believe I did that. You know, just like, you know, is like the, is it real kind of thing? But, yeah. um, as time goes on, you know, and then the more I jam it, I'm like, I hate this finger. Like mm. it needs to go. Yeah. And so I'm excited to, to do something. And, 
you know, you get those people who are just like, I would keep it. Who, who, you know, the the aesthetic of having the finger on would yeah. outweigh the function. But, you know, coming from my perspective, I'm like, it's more of an impediment at this point than anything else, right? Even though I can do the things that I want to do, it still like gets in the way and like can cause pain. Mm. Uh, and one of the things, so like the OTs who I explain it to, they understand, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? The people who are work like, you know, with function, um, my one thing that, that has helped out a lot is that anytime a different idea had popped up in my head, like I, I talk about it with my fiance and she says she's down for whatever. She's like, do what you got to do. And I was like, you're not going to care if I have like one finger when I hold your hand, like this is well, my rings going on this hand, you know, like it's, it's, it's going to be what it is. She's like, no, of course not. Like she's down. She's like, put a tattoo on it. I don't care. Like do what you want. And so she's been like super, super supportive while as like yeah, other family great. members who more so look at, you know, Oh, you're going to look different now. Yeah, yeah. Um, or more so like, Oh, I would just keep it. Just keep it. Don't cut that off. Once it's gone, it's gone. It's like, you know, it's, it's hard for some people to understand, but um, for me and then like, you know, some of the people that I'm closer with and who I speak with more, they're like, Oh yeah. Like get it gone. Yeah. Like it doesn't do anything. You know? Yeah. If- um, uh, like you said, it's that, that that balance between aesthetics and function. It just depends on, I guess, what you value more in the long run. And obviously, right. there's going to be some people that, you know, may value that aesthetic. Or I've heard people talk about it as, you know, being whole because you miss it because it's, you know that tiny little bit of right. finger is what makes you whole, apparently. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, like everyone's got the. It depends what they value more, whether it's like you said, mm-hmm. function or aesthetic for whatever reason right and i've explained too i'm like I, you know i don't even know that cutting it off i think it may be more aesthetically pleasing because i mean i know you have you have a podcast so it's all audio but like you know if i hold a cup my finger sticks straight out mm. you know if i'm if i'm holding on to a dumbbell and you know doing a bench press or something you know my my finger Fingers. points in yeah, there yeah. right i'm constantly pointing if i give a thumbs up yeah. My finger sticks straight out, right? Finger and guns. so, yeah. <laughs> if if a finger gun, it, it's yeah. a, it's a chronic finger gun, and so if if it was gone, you know, I could I could give a thumbs up, yeah, right? Yeah. I could I could you know any anything where I'm holding something looks more normal. Uh, yeah, I think so especially especially with that be. kind of stuff, it probably people would like you you're made at the gym. Like people are probably going to mm-hmm. notice it less because you don't have your right. finger poking out in situations that. You know, it, it normally wouldn't like holding a cup or a, a barbell and that kind of stuff. So yeah, I completely get that. <laughs> I have a I have a funny story about a guy. I was doing an evaluation with a with a man who has some pretty severe cognitive impairments, and you know, I'm doing uh, a functional range of motion assessment where I'm having him move all his limbs, all his upper body stuff. You know, bring his hands over his head, and so he couldn't really understand like the the verbal cues that i was giving him and so i had to model so i was i I had him just do what i do so i put my hand over my head i tuck him and when it got to the point of making two fists to see that his (laughs) digit flexion was fine i you know i i flexed it in and i have that crooked finger and he looks at he kind of makes a funny face and he makes two little finger pistols (laughs) i'm like no 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 (laughs) 
Ignore this end. All the way. Follow this I had to end. Put it behind, yeah. <laughs> I put it behind my back, and then I did it. And then he put his hand behind his back, and I'm like, no, 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 no. And so it was, it was just kind of a funny story about, you know, how intrusive the, the stuck finger is. <laughs> well, that's the other thing is if you, you've got your, your knob, cool story. Oh, it's a great story. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to say I'm glad it happened, but, you know, it's it sparked conversation. Do you find that going through that kind of experience yourself has had any impact on how you relate or how you do your work with other clients? Oh, 100%. 100%. Um, you know, you kind of, which... You know, I feel I feel weird about it because I don't like to talk with patients and compare what they're going through to me. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, I find myself saying, oh, I understand how you feel when they look at me. You know, I'm, I'm back to work 100 percent. I'm doing I'm helping them do a lot of things. Mm. And and so. At first, I was like, oh, this is great because I can relate to my patients, which, you know, I can on a certain level, but I try not to explicitly talk about it unless it's something that they bring up because, you know, I lost, I lost the function of, of one finger and most of the people that I work with, you know, or, or, you know, let's say a stroke, you know, their whole arm mm. is, is gone. So I don't want to, I don't want to necessarily say, I understand what you're going through because yeah, I've yeah. been there before particularly when their prognosis and their rehab potential is not like mine was with, yep. you know, an orthopedic injury. And so I've kind of like grappled with that. Cause at first, before I actually got back in the clinic, I was like, Oh, this is great. I'm going to be able to relate with my patients. And then when I actually got there, I was like, Ooh, I don't know if I should be yeah. bringing this up. I don't know if I should tell every person that I understand what they're going through because I don't think I do, yep. you know, particularly when it's something as, you know, it, it, I don't have a, I don't have a neurological condition that's, you know, more globalized. I, I mean, I have one very localized injury that I'm doing well with. Yep. Um, now some people want to talk about it, you know, like if I, if I do teach single arm dressing and, and, you know, a person has good like proximal return and their shoulders moving well and, you know, they just can't grip onto things or they can't do buttons. Then I'm like, okay, let's like, this is what I did when yeah. I was going through something similar. And I've been able to help people yep. uh, like that. I've, I've helped people, you know, work with buttons, different ways to do buttons, different ways to do watches. Um, what else do we do? Oh, folding clothes. You know, I, I've learned how to fold clothes differently, you know, cause I, I can't, wasn't able to like really grip for a while. And yep. so this is like those little small adaptations I find relates to some people more than others yeah. um but i kind of have to judge it like patient to patient you know? yeah 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 i think it'd, it'd be more uh you'd be able to i guess empath empathize with them more so than like understand exactly what is happening for them yeah yeah i think that's a, i think that's a good way to put it i think that's a good way to put it um i wonder too how you know people have told me i have like toxic optimism you know where it's it's hard for me to be in a bad mood and so you know it, i've never heard that before but i can understand why they would say it to you i only hear them talk to me like that i don't know <laughs> <laughs> so you know i don't know uh you know what kind of mindset a person is because you know i had like my ups and downs like when i first got hurt and even still now sometimes but for the most part I was like, I can't wait to get back to these things. Right. Yep. While a lot of them are like, 
oof, you know, I don't know. I do you, don't know if I'm gonna gonna get there. Do you think you're like obviously your mindset of I can't wait to get back to there, obviously you had that hope which fostered that sort of motivation in order to engage in that stuff. Do you think that your background as an OT helped that or have you just are you just like that as a person? I think both, probably. I think I think having that OT background, you know, knowing you know, I knew what was going on with my injuries. So mm. I knew where the risks were and I knew how to like mitigate somewhat. And so that kind of boosted my confidence, um, you know, but I, I don't know. It's actually hard to say, you know, yeah. I've always been kind of an optimistic person, um, but I've never had to deal with a serious injury without, you know, a background of, of, you know, I, I know how to adapt a task, I, you know, putting my clothes on even the day after therapy was, was, was easier, yeah. you know, like I knew how to do it and I was excited to actually try it. Yeah. Right. I don't know that I would have been so excited and so gung ho if I didn't have that OT background. Yeah. Uh, you know, so I, I do think it helped a lot and I knew, you know, I was excited to problem solve with myself as opposed to problem solving with another person. Right. Mm. Cause I could actually sit down and spend time on it. Um, and I think that, I think that goes back to OT. Like, I, I think the OT, the OT in me didn't let me get defeated. Yeah. Yeah. I think that'd probably be the best way to put it. Cause I, I often wonder about how, uh, like, the, I guess the mental side of a lot of this stuff is sometimes the biggest challenge for a lot of people. Um, mm-hmm. You know, yeah, like we were talking about before with the splints, like, yeah, you can follow the protocol and blah, blah, blah. But if you don't feel like you're going to, recover from it or you can't see an end in sight it's gonna either make it like a worse outcome or it's just gonna make the progress that you're making really slow and hellish um and i often wonder how and i mainly wonder this because of all of the variety of opinions we've seen throughout this pandemic on various things um Mm -hmm. how much health literacy uh plays a part in you know people's I guess mindset when something does happen. So like mm-hmm. I had an incident and I did an episode about it. It would have been over 12 months now. Where I ended up in hospital and my health literacy, I feel like, you know, I understood the processes. I knew what I could and couldn't do, blah, blah, blah. Like I, it made that whole process a lot easier um, for me. But then like seeing other people in the hospital around me and I'm like, there's people that didn't speak English that were struggling to communicate with nurses. There was mm-hmm. people who just didn't want to be there or didn't think they needed to be there or that kind of stuff. And I'm like, yes, we're all in here for different reasons, but I feel like the the general populace's health literacy being relatively low probably mm-hmm. makes all of these kinds of processes a lot more difficult for them mm-hmm. as well as for the yeah. therapists. Yeah. You know what I found this, and this is interesting, you know, with, you know, I, I spent most of my time in outpatient. So I'll see people who have had, you know, multiple therapies have, have, you know, are kind of sometimes kind of far out from their injury and that health literacy component makes me have to do really hard things and say really hard things sometimes because, sometimes people come in in really good moods and they'll say, you know, I can't wait to, you know, my, they sent me here so that 
I can walk, you know, I can't wait to, so I can walk and, and, you know, get back on my boat. Uh, I like to barbecue this way. I have this big pit where I can blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, buddy, you have a complete spinal cord injury. Mm. Like, you're not going to walk. And that optimistic mood all of a sudden is down. Right. I mean, it's, and it's, it's hard because, and I don't know if it's because people don't like to have those conversations which I, I guess I know people don't like to have those conversations, yeah. uh, particularly when you don't have to follow people to the end of their care. Like, like let's say if you work in an acute unit, yeah, yeah. you know, you get, you do what's best for them level. in that moment and then they go to the next place and they do inpatient and then they discharge to home health. And then when you do home health, you know that, okay, they're going to get some outpatient therapy soon. You know, like you're all, you're always continuing, you're working on something, but we're kind of the last line of defense. And so, when they come in with, this is my ultimate goal. This is what I want to do when it's not realistic because they don't understand their, their injury or their condition. It's really hard, mm. right? Cause we're the ones who has, has to tell them. And so we see a lot of unrealistic goals, particularly when it relates to, you know, driving, we do a lot of driving evaluations in our clinic yep. and that's hard for people to say, you know, it's, it's there, there are some doctors who will, suspend a license after something like a massive stroke where their vision's impaired, you know, yep. they have neglect, they have poor balance. And then there's some who don't. And they say, my, my license is good. Like I can drive. I don't know why you're saying all this stuff. I'm like, no, 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 no. You can't drive. Mm. Like, don't try that. <laughs> like you're going to, you're going to hurt yourself. Yeah. And, and possibly someone else. Yeah. It's someone else. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, we have to, to, take the proper steps and then educate when, when goals are not realistic. And that is hard because, you know, it's a, it's a shock, you know, it's instant. And sometimes I've, I'll work with people for two, three weeks. And before I realize that, like, man, they don't know, they think their stroke is going to go away. Like a cold goes away. Yeah. You know? And then I'm like, I didn't realize like how, how out of the loop this person was. And so that you know, just, you know, when I think of health literacy, that to me is the hardest part with working with people. And I see a lot. Yeah. You know, I see it a lot. Yeah. And it's, yeah, that, that would be really hard. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Again, I don't know how you fix it <laughs> unless I'm right. Like, yeah, national, I don't, I don't know. Health literacy campaign or something. I don't know. But, um, yeah, I, I see this a, a lot at the moment with a lot of people who don't understand how vaccines work and that kind of stuff and right. all sorts of conspiracy right. theories around all sorts of stuff. And I'm like, yeah. like if I, like the tiniest little stuff, I think that we often just take for granted, like just stuff that we know. Well, I think because of our background and our training, I'm like, is this not common knowledge? Like, how do you not know right. this? And I'm like, right. well, you've, you know, worked on a farm your whole life and you've literally probably hung around the same 10 people for the last 50 years. Like, of course you mm. wouldn't know those kinds of things. Like, Right, right. It's, yeah, I, I, I wonder how, yeah, the health literacy now, like, impacts on the, I guess, that motivation to advance or contributes mm -hmm. to it at least. Um, but, yeah, yeah it, I it sounds like it, it probably would in from what I've heard. Yeah. I mean, it's hard, it's tricky, but you know, it's part of the job. I, I, I've gotten better with it. I mean, I still have to get 
way better. You know, I don't like to be the bearer of bad news. No, I don't I'm think a, anyone does. You know, a natural people pleaser, you know, and so when I have to, to, you know, meet with someone's family and tell them like, you can't live alone anymore. Mm. You're not going to drive. Like we're not going to work on it. Um, it's just hard, you know, and they don't understand why. And I understand why they don't understand because this is not the field that they grew up in. Like you said, they were on a farm, yeah, you yeah. know, they, you know, they did something that was completely unrelated and, you know, you can kind of hear what you want to hear and it, it just like affects everything, makes everything more difficult. Well, so that's right. the other thing with that specifically is uh, I'm, I wonder how much that is based on, I guess, more of a, a Western value of what, you know, I guess being an adult is kind of thing. And it's all about getting the job and doing work and being independent. Independence is this, this sort of gold standard held in Western culture where mm -hmm. we don't even look at like other cultures and go, Hey, they don't actually value independence as much as we do for some reason. Mm -hmm. Maybe we could learn a few things off, you know, other people. Cause there's plenty of cultures around the world that, prefer to value dependence when you get old your family mm -hmm. looks after you you end up with three or four generations sometimes living under the same roof and there's this mm -hmm. process that everyone looks after everyone and it's not a thing to you know you hit 17 18 years old and then you move out and you go to college and you know you might move across the country somewhere and you know you visit your parents a christmas kind of thing and that's about it like it's mm -hmm. that's not uh, we, but the whole health system seems to be framed around, and that's, this isn't just America, this is everywhere. The whole health system um, seems to be framed around these very westernized goals of we need to get people in. And I think that's where the the primary focus of like self-care sometimes comes into it is because that's what you need to be able to do to be independent, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. When, like you said, that's not always the goal. And I wonder, I mean, if high in the sky stuff like if you could sit down and just rewrite the whole health system from scratch like what would it look like mm -hmm. and how different would it be from what we have at the moment it'd be very different but what would it look like i don't know yeah <laughs> you know i could I could make our best guesses but you know i find it you know how i was kind of talking earlier about how our insurances want uh you know self-care stuff you know adl yeah uh while and and like you know work on that to be independent but oftentimes like you said that depending on the culture like if you if you work with people who aren't necessarily from like you know western cultures like you said they that independence is not important they're older people they have like the the family to take care of them and so i get kind of nervous sometimes you know with with certain people that like your insurance might deny you because you don't want me to work on this self-care. And I understand that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like, like you don't want to increase your independence with toileting because your wife is going to take you. And she told mm. us that. Right. And she's going to, she's going to do that. Uh, and so that's kind of, you know, with the, uh, our, our insurances are not very culturally competent. Yeah. Right? We, there's other things we could work on, but it kind of, is, is nerve wracking when I'm like, man, like, okay, we self-care is not important, not a meaningful goal to you. Hopefully we can keep you in therapy. Yeah, right? yeah. Uh, I mean, we should be able to, but you know, that's a, just another trick. Yep. The barrier. Yep. So 
where to with regards to your own rehab? Obviously, you got to get that guitar going. Got to get the guitar and going. Make your decision about your surgery. Is there anything else that you need to do, or are you pretty much back to? I'm back. I'm back, and I'm rocking and rolling. That's all. Awesome. Doing my thing. I've yeah, yeah. I just got to find the the time to get a surgery. Yeah. Right. Because you know I'll miss work for yeah. a little bit. I don't really want to do that. Yeah. It's you know I don't know. I guess at the it's moment you're day. in a, you're in an okay space where it's not like an emergency surgery, so you've got a little bit no. of like no, I have choice. time. I, there's yeah. there's no rush. There's no rush. I, I it's possible that I'll I'll break my index finger and then be forced to get a surgery before I actually decide to go and do it. Yeah. Um, which almost happens a couple of times a week. <laughs> yeah. You know, it'll it'll happen. You know. Um. But no, I'm just kind of, my plan is just to kind of hang out, keep doing what I'm doing, you know, be kind of careful. You know, I've got, I got nine working fingers now, so they're all a little bit more exclusive. I'm going to try to keep them, but we'll see. Yeah. You value them a little bit more now. (laughs) A little bit more. I could lose a couple more and probably still be fine, but. Oh, no doubt. Be 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 selective about which ones, that's all. I just need to know a good OT, and I can. I'll be fine. Yeah, I'm sure you find one somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> last, maybe, maybe. last question. What did you ever do with that tool? <laughs> oh my gosh, I threw it away the same day. <laughs> I actually, <laughs> I came home because uh, you know I I got back right before dark, and my I had my stuff. I had sawdust everywhere. Yeah, I had yeah. blood dripping across the concrete. I had the blown out glove. I have you know, just a huge mess to clean up. And I, I took the tool. Well, actually it wasn't the same day because I couldn't use my hand to take the, the blade off yeah, the yeah. tool. And so the day after I figured out how to get that thing off and I just chunked it. I took a picture with it though. <laughs> so I could tell people I have a, I have a, a picture of a, a bloody soft wrapped hand with a, of my, my tool, my brand new tool that I used to cut it off. So. For oh, the memories, yeah, frame that one. Yeah, but don't don't ever get a chainsaw disc for an angle grinder. Don't even think about it. I wasn't and won't. <laughs> good, good. There's one thing you learned today. That's right. If you <laughs> take nothing this. away from this podcast, <laughs> take that away. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. That's awesome, man. Thanks, thanks so much for for coming, having a chat, sharing your story. It's it's fascinating. Oh no, I I appreciate it. Not many people care about what's going on in my mind besides you know ot minded people so i appreciate it it's probably because your mind's always so happy people just assume everything's like rainbows in there maybe maybe so maybe <laughs> so <laughs> uh anything you want to shout out if people have any questions can they message you or email you or anything like that oh yeah they can they can message me email me find me on i don't know wherever i have all the the social medias you know, cool. search my name. Sounds good. We'll, I'll be on there somewhere. We'll throw some links in the show notes. Awesome. Sure Thanks thing. heaps, man. Cool, brother. It was fun. Yeah. It was fun. If you liked this episode and want to check out more, head over to OccupiedPodcast.com or search Occupied Podcast in your favorite podcasting app. If you have thoughts or reflections on the topics discussed today, please do get in contact. We'd love to hear from you. 
And lastly, if you got some value from this and you want to help us out, like, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Remember, be good to yourself, be good to others, and always keep occupied.